I'm Lindsay Hotmeyer and welcome to Storyhouse. This is a podcast about growing your business, but it's also about slowing down the noise so you can give the world the best parts of who you are. So if you've struggled with all the buzz around storytelling only to feel like you don't have a story worth sharing, or if you're tired of being forced on the wheel of marketing that doesn't feel right, but also feels impossible to ignore, then be sure to meet me here every week to hear from real business owners as we dismantle all the should-dos and must-dos of business. Hear how they've wrestled through their own struggles and walk away with strategies that help you authentically and sustainably grow, scale, or pivot the business you've built. Anne Barr Thompson is a global brand strategist, an award-winning thought leader, an author, and an international speaker. She's endlessly curious about human behavior and her work focuses on uncovering the underlying truths that drive authentic leadership and corporate culture. And Anne helps us understand how shifting cultural dynamics impact people's relationships with brands, one another, and themselves. Anne, I'm so excited that you're here with us every time you share something or, you know, I hear you speak about something. I just always feel a synergy. I want to lean in. I want to hear what you have to say. And I think that some of that for me is because you aren't just saying it because this is what you think or, or feel or just believe. Like you are really peeling back the curtains to see what's happening. And so I'm just curious, you know, as you talk a lot about purpose-driven brands, you talk about uh, corporate culture, authentic leadership, all these all these things that everybody's caring about and they're talking a lot about. So let me just dive into the big question right away and ask you, as we're having more and more of these conversations around purpose, what are we getting wrong about those conversations? And then conversely, because I don't just want to be the critical theorist, I want to ask, what are we doing right as well? So first of all, I want to thank you for having me because I think the mutual uh, feeling is mutual about wanting to lean in and dive in. And uh, I think if we actually started a conversation, we could keep our listeners here for about two, three hours, <laughs> pontificating the meaning of life overall and from many different angles. So um, so purpose, actually, that's a nice segue into purpose. And it wasn't intentional. It just sort of happened. So I wouldn't say that we're getting anything wrong or right about purpose. I would say we're we're in a stage where things are evolving. And in a lot of my conversations now, actually, purpose has gone a little bit by the wayside because people are focused on climate, 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 climate. <laughs> and so, you know, it's always about the next big thing for many people in business. And as we've moved into this, I don't want to say post-pandemic, although I guess it is officially now post-pandemic stage, the things that traditional departments in, in organizations, traditional functionalities are wrestling and with continue to get wider. And purpose was one of those initial things that was added on to other elements. And for me, purpose has always been very much tied to, to brand vision, brand mission, and things of that nature, because brand for me has not been about branding and advertising marketing, but much more about the motivating factor on a corporate strategic level, the thing that ties a business together. So if I talk of return back to where I started about it's not that we're getting things wrong or right, we're evolving. I think what's happening now with purpose is that the conversation is maturing 
And it's becoming more about everyday choices and actions and route to becoming our best selves rather than necessarily fulfilling that grand why. Purpose started out as that grand why. So everybody focused, whether you're a brand or a person, you focused on what's this greatest reason for my being. Mm -hmm. And from a business perspective, it is about the larger reason, your larger raison d'etre of why you're here. And for those of us that come from brand as a corporate strategy thing, that was always what a brand mission or vision was about. And then the mission was how you accomplish it. So in many ways, purpose is about that grand why, but it's not solely your social mission. And I think the people that latched onto purpose as a social mission, as a, a marketing campaign, as a way to say they, they cared about more than just earning a profit... But, but as an appendage, not as something tied to the wider reason for the business existing, has shifted. And so people who are still talking about purpose and tying it to climate and sustainability are tethering it very much to the, to the business value proposition and why a business exists, not its social mission. It has to be broad enough well, for a business to do good and be thought of as more than just earning a profit, some businesses really do have a purpose just to earn money. Right, <laughs> and, right. And, and being honest about that is a better way to be than pretending, oh, here's our social mission and that's our purpose. Mm-hmm. And, and we're just going to continue to screw people over and treat our suppliers in bad ways and not care about our employees. So, but purpose should be the reason you exist on a higher level, how you serve society as a business. And be broad enough in that way of serving society to encompass a social mission, to accomplish doing things from a sense of responsibility and from a moral sense, not only an ethics sense. And what's happening as ESG, Environment, Social, and Governance, a set of acronyms that sometimes are tied to purpose, not necessarily have to be, as that conversation is evolving and becoming politicized also, People are starting to to see all these things as stemming from why a business exists, how we respond to the environment, how we respond to the planet, how we are sustainable stems from why we exist and ensuring we stay in business and environment, social and governance, which encompasses some of that in the environment, but in the social, the treating people well and the governance, how we behave, how we reward people. All that has to come from why our business exists mm-hmm. and drive down. And I'm sorry, people can't see me because I, I, I think of it as laddering <laughs> down or laddering up from things. And that was probably a slightly convoluted answer. So I apologize, but it's not so straightforward. No. And I think that that lack of straightforwardness is what makes it such a hard work for people to do because it isn't straightforward and it is, it can be messy. Maybe to make it less abstract, can you give us a brand or two that you feel like have have really achieved this well? And I'm putting you on the spot a little bit because I didn't have that in in the questions for you ahead of time, but maybe to help us kind of latch onto something as we talk through some of these bigger ideas. Well, I'm going to resist that slightly because we go to those standard brands that are put up there on the pillars and we can, you know, let's out of the box, say Patagonia. (laughs) Um, Natura is a brand a lot of Americans don't know, but they actually own some brands. Americans do know they own Avon. Natura is a a Brazilian cosmetics company that owns Aesop, which is a, a niche cosmetic brand. They own, they own Avon now. Uh, Natura actually is a brand that people don't know about, 
as much as they know about Patagonia, that also is a brand that I would say has lived its purpose out of box since the 1960s when it was founded. And, and it's about well-being well. There's, I, I outline numerous brands that do this in my book, but the reason I actually want to push away from that is because the challenge is these brands that we set up as exemplars, as doing things perfectly right, actually put off a lot of other brands and put off a lot of other people because they say we can't be that great, that big. So what I would say is how, how the conversation for purpose is evolving and where it's going to that's practical for people is purpose should frame a set of guidelines, a set of benchmarks for how people behave. And in each moment, in each activity, Every individual person in an organization can think about that purpose and the choice they have to make to take an action. And is the choice they're making actually in alignment with that purpose or is it in alignment with something else? And where individual people and employees who have to live, quote unquote, the corporate purpose run into problems is when they see the purpose as words and not as guiding actions and behaviors for people. They don't see their executive leaders, ex you know, being purpose in action, purpose, the living notion of purpose. They don't see people, executive leaders living purpose. And so they question, well, should I make this choice that I think is the right choice given what we say we do? Or should I make this choice that I actually think is kind of a yucky choice because that's how I'm going to be graded on my evaluation. Mm -hmm. But the, the idea of purpose and where purpose is evolving to is about making those choices in every action and step we take to become our best selves and to become our best selves as individuals and to, to make the organization, the brand, which is the human face of a business, become its best self. And so I think that's the, the challenge is when you look at these exemplar brands, they put you off. It's like, well, we're not like that. We weren't founded on purpose or we have a corporate board that is looking at other things than an individual founder. And so many of these examples we use are actually founder led or founder values ingrained in a business rather than, than corporate board values necessarily being ingrained in a business. Yeah. Can you speak to that difference a bit? Because like for my work, I am, I am always working one-on-one -on -one with the founder. With the founders. Just, yeah. That's exactly. how it is. You know, I'm not working exactly. with those huge brands that have gotten years and years and, you know, miles and miles away from that founder. And so can you talk about that difference and maybe what does that work look like for a brand, a company that really is trying to drive towards its purpose, but there maybe isn't that single founder? It is more board-led. What's that? Well, it becomes a, a decision and a, a difficult choice. And then you have to, so this, this is where it really starts getting messy. Um, <laughs> so there's always trade-offs. And even in a founder-led business, there's always trade-offs. So one of the biggest things that's the next step in living purpose in determining what actions to take to, to be sustainable and how you define sustainability, because not everybody defines sustainability in the same way, or how you make ESG more than a compliance and, and risk measurement 
function in terms of finances and more um, a set of principles that that are related to those other things and live. It comes down to going back to, to seeing what is the value proposition of our business? Which audiences, which whether you want to say audience, constituents, stakeholders, people have issues with all these words at the moment, but which groups of, of people that interact with your business are most material to its success and living its purpose? Which ones matter the most? Because unfortunately, you can't take into account everyone in a decision. You, you, can, you can only you know, you can consider how everyone will respond and put that into your decision-making, but you have to determine which of these groups of people that you interact with on multiple levels is most material and will impact the success as you define it of your business the most. Mm. And that's how you start making those decisions as, as, as a board, as an executive committee, as a single owner. So these are the people that matter to us, and we're going to take into account how they'll respond, what they want from us, what's material to them, because that needs to be material to our success. If I give an example of something that happened where you're talking about the difference between being a founder-led organization still or a board-led organization, I won't say who, but someone I've recently worked with made a decision about divesting in certain types of investments for their business because they didn't feel that those investments were in alignment with what they said their stated purpose was and what was important to some of their audiences. Their board came back and said to them, we argue differently. We actually don't think that audience that you're taking into account to whom this is important matters to the success of our business. And we want you to reinvest in that. So if you're a founder and you make that decision, you can continue to say, these people matter to us. Right. But here you're balancing different people's viewpoints. And that's what becomes very complex is Absolutely. because not everyone defines what's right or wrong in the same way. What's right to one group <laughs> is wrong to another. And if I you know, can very easily refer to a brand, which I often right. try to avoid, but we have Bud Light out there right now. Exactly. And you know, this has been a big thing in the news over many weeks. And it's actually changed the way Anheuser-Busch is operating. And senior management now is going to get involved and brand decisions. Now, the, the Bud Light situation with a social post about a transgender individual was probably looked at as one small piece in isolation. However, someone else outside of the group they were intending saw it. Budweiser had a series of, or Bud Light, I should say, and Anheuser-Busch as a corporation faced a series of decisions they could make after this happened. Mm -hmm. We do nothing, which the CEO tried to do for a while, but it wasn't fading and he probably was getting pressure from whomever. And then the CEO sort of tried to undermine what was done, which isn't the right thing to do, because if you do something, you have to sort of stand behind it. And whether it was a small choice or not, the brand team should have sat down and said, who are the potential people that will be offended by this? How do we manage that? Does this matter? 
but so so then the other decision Bud Light had, which is is one they made, is they basically undermined the whole brand team in their decision, and you know basically said we stand for everyone, but then we're not standing for everyone anymore. Right. So they put themselves in a conundrum in response to something that they actually could have thought through. And in today's world, as much as it seemed like a small little social post probably to the brand team, they should have thought it through. And sometimes when you step back and you watch a multitude of these things that happen, and whether it's from H&M that had a monkey on a sweatshirt years ago, or mm-hmm. you know, all the way to this, you sort of step back and you say, how could they not have thought about that? But it's because they had their head focused on what they were trying to achieve, who they were trying to focus on. But you can't do that anymore. Everything has to be done as scenario planning to say, these are the audiences we care about. These are the audiences we don't care about. How are each of these going to respond? And then how do we respond? Because that's just the climate right now. And does that make the the brand managers, the ad agency, every communications person job harder? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's no question. It is so much more complex than it used to be. But if you also step back and think if Bud Light had stood up for what they did, gay pride is coming up. They could have actually turned it around and said, this is what we're focused on. And, and yes, you might be upset, but we actually care about everybody and we care about you too. And so maybe then they go and put a, a can with a, you know, I don't want to say the extremist people, but something that starts making these other people feel recognized. Although at the end of the day, because the CEO of Anheuser-Busch stepped in, it became an Anheuser-Busch issue in a bigger way than it probably might have been. Mm -hmm. But we don't know. You know, it's very easy to speculate what could have happened. But the important thing that comes out of that is no decision can be taken anymore in isolation. Yeah, you know, that that example is such a, you know, and will be used as a powerful case study for years to come. It, it's been fascinating to watch, you know, and you you so well laid it all out. What, you know, what I've thought of over the last few weeks is, you know, I've, I've read how some brands are just like taking their hands off the wheel when it mm-hmm. comes to stepping into social issues, purpose-driven initiatives, because it feels unsafe. You step in the wrong spot and poof, it all blows up, which is what has happened with Anheuser-Busch. You know, they're marketing director, their VP, she said, I was given a mandate to make this more of a relevant brand. And it's like, she was given just a carte blanche, mm-hmm. do what you want. So she did. And poof, it blew up because, as you said, there clearly wasn't a dialogue and maybe that understanding of who are we, what messages are we taking out there into the world, what is our purpose, you know, what is our goal here, and so there's there is a lot swirling around, and the the question I've been left with as I've watched this reaction is what is the corporate responsibility, brand responsibility. Forging ahead on an issue when you know there's going to be backlash and doing it anyways, because we've seen the the power of brands and corporations to usher in social change versus understanding who your audience is and respecting who your audience is as well. There's just, it's an interesting tension to step into and look at. Mm -hmm. So what are are Mm -hmm. your thoughts there? 
Well, so the one thing I want to go back to, because as you were speaking, I realized I didn't emphasize this one thing in the Bud Light thing, and it does get into part of your question, is the brand manager was given a charge to expand the brand beyond its its fraternity orientation. Mm-hmm. And when you consider, and, and again, some of this is looking at surveys, so it's hard to know what people are saying because they feel they should be saying it or because they really believe it. Right. But when you you if you we accept the data at face value, the data says younger people tend to be more open-minded about issues that have to do with sexuality and gender identification and 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 even race identification, various identifications. So if that was the case, over time, Bud Light may have actually been a brand that took a stand and helped people feel more recognized and identified. But again, it was part of a portfolio that has the Budweiser name associated with it and and a lot of other brands Mm -hmm. and Anheuser-Busch very deeply tied to to Budweiser. So there's a multitude of layers in there. And if you think about the layers of brand architecture in that, Mm -hmm. it even makes that decision more complex. And, And as I think about it, they probably, you know, you need a matrix of this is our brand and these are the audiences that matter to us. And then this is the parent brand or the master brand. Well, it's not, a, it's more apparent Budweiser, but, and then the ownership brand, which is a corporate structure, but for many people does matter. So you have to start thinking in those layers now, which actually a brand manager never had to really do on that level before. Mm-hmm. So court to your point about where corporations need to stand up. I've been having a lot of conversations about this with people in business. I, I, I did a webinar last week that included two sustainability managers and Judy Samuelson from the Aspen Institute, who who is involved very much in these type of issues. And everyone feels that this Bud Light situation, more than anything else, has emphasized a need to pause for a moment. Now, I want to say purpose does not necessarily dictate you have to take a stand on an issue. (laughs) Purpose is tied to why your business exists. And if an issue is not tied to why your business exists, then you have to determine, is it material or important to your audiences? And if it's important to your audiences, that you then have to make that decision. And I think one of the things that makes it more complex than even the consumer side, and, and I like to think of that as people, because the consumer is also an employee and also an investor, so we're all people. And and we don't necessarily wear different hats as we view things. We may be standing in a different position, but we're still who we are with our values. Mm -hmm. And so this was one of the first examples we've had recently that had more, and I say recently, because we can go back to Kellogg's and Breitbart and things of that nature. But in the, the past two, three years, it was more about and people out there who weren't part of the brand than about employees. So the taking the stand issue and stepping up and taking a stand has been pushed much more recently by employees Mm -hmm. than it has by customers. And so I think you have to identify who are our audiences. And and in America, brands are to some degree now, certain brands, not every brand, somewhat associated with political leanings. Mm-hmm. I know a professor that's done research on this and, and is actually tying brand sales to postal codes and political leanings. So, 
you know, if you think about your customers, that's one audience. And then you think about your employees, that stepping back and not taking a stand is actually easier from a customer standpoint. You can have a viewpoint on certain things and speak up about that, but that doesn't mean you have to get involved in things that are about political stands. You know, whether it's about gay rights, transgender rights, abortion, gun control, a lot of these things are often related to the employee or to the investor as much as it is. So you need to determine what's important to them. Does that tie up to your purpose? Mm -hmm. And is it essential we take a stand on something or take a position? And is it in response to what's going on out there? Or is it a viewpoint we just hold? Because that's different. Mm-hmm. And that's where you start looking at a Patagonia a viewpoint. We just hold is this environment needs to be saved. Right. And that has nothing to do with legislation. So there's some fine lines in there. And, and it's a matter of, do we respond often to what's going on out there in the real world Then necessarily does our brand have a view on this? Mm. Yeah. It's tough work. And what you're talking about, especially with the difference between employees and customers, to me speaks to probably your work on culture building and going in and really Mm -hmm. looking at that. And so that should be a red flag to leaders of corporations, of brands, when their employees start asking for something that's not in alignment with the corporation's Mm -hmm. values, that there's been a disconnect somewhere along the line of what your brand purpose is, what your brand story is. People aren't knowing it. They're they're joining you, not understanding who you are. Like I say with story, you know, story should, should answer two things. Who are you and who am I going to become when I join you? And that's essential. That's true for the story that you're telling your employees. Like they're asking you, who are you and who will I become when I join you? And something's happening where that either that disconnect is happening or employees are no longer recognizing the the structure that mm-hmm. that story down structure of the story comes from the founder and trickles down to us they're they're pushing up and trying to shape it themselves so i said a lot so that's an interesting yeah. right so it's about co-creating what we stand for together in some levels but you need to have the lighthouse out there, the, the North Star, the whatever you want to call that driving ambition and make that clear. But what I think is interesting and in what you're talking about is there's that, that top up from the vision. And let's not call top up from the leaders, but top up from the vision of what our brand is about, what our purpose is as an organization. And then there's a bottom up from foundation. And that's sort of what I think of as hygienic factors and what matters. So is, is fair pay a brand factor or a a hygienic factor. So there's certain factors that are sort of, you know, basic human rights, so to speak, if if I use a broad term on that, not necessarily the right one, but, you know, a basic thing that we believe business should be offering us as employees, that business should be standing for in society. And so there's a basic sense of responsibility and fairness and that in many ways goes to this notion of doing no harm. So, you know, doing good is so much more about being additive. And that's where the conversation has moved to. But historically, it's about doing no harm. And some of these basic factors about pay, about gender equality, about sexual equality, you know, identification, 
all these things, what fits in to doing no harm continues to shift with society's shifting notions. Now, the challenge is, is we tend to define a lot of that by the polar opposites. Right. When in reality, those groups are smaller than what's in the middle, but the middle has such a fragmented range of opinions and they see gray, different shades of gray and different shades where it's easier to define that by the blacks and whites Mm -hmm. because their, their density is greater because they're, they're a gathering of people in one space versus the middle that's, you know, spread thin with different sorts of range of opinion, that density at the polar ends tends to define what is considered responsible in doing no harm for a business. And it tends to often have opposite opinions. <laughs> My question to that is if we know that, if we know that it's the, the, the far extremes that are speaking into issues the most, that a lot of the tension that we feel, a lot of the lack of civil discourse that we feel is coming as a result of these extremes. And I love how you put that. It's the the density is greater. It's not that the numbers are greater. It's that it, they are more dense because they collect, they unify, they, they are create, they're creating the quote unquote movements. But as somebody in the middle, you know, I'm very much in the middle. And so I very much feel that I feel that frustration of those, you know, that cacophony going on between the the two extremes. So if we know that as corporations, as brand leaders, just as people in general, why is there no pushback to those extreme voices? Why isn't there more tuning into what's happening in the center so that you actually can pursue that almost outdated added, uh, notion of the common good, like so that that can actually be a thing. Well, I think there is a tuning into the center, but what happens is, is then you have a crisis or a situation that the other sides respond to. And, and that's where you have to make a decision of what you stand for. Mm-hmm. Unless there is a neutral way to, to step in there, you know, with voters' rights, for example, it's, it's you know, we stand for freedom. And voting. If you stand for that, and and you know, you can think of Coca-Cola and other companies that had to deal with this. If you stand for that, you have to stand for that. Mm-hmm. And and not turn it into a we're for this legislation or that legislation. We stand for this. But where you run into even murkier territory is the the opaque money that goes into lobbying or the opaque money that's given to campaigns. Now in this webinar that that I was mentioning that I did last week, one of the presenters was the chief sustainability officer from Colgate Palmolive. And it turns out they actually have a policy of no political donations. Hmm. Now that doesn't mean they don't necessarily give on other levels to things that have to do with lobbying for things in their industry, because they're all about, about oral health and things of that nature. So they might lobby for something related to their purpose as their business. Right. But the other money they don't do, at least as I understood it in this conversation. Mm. So that's where you start running into challenges because we say we're about this and then someone somewhere reveals that, guess what? We're about this, but we're donating to these people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we're donating to both camps. Right, <laughs> which right. really says we're about nothing <laughs> because we're just trying to make sure we sit in the middle. So this is why it's so complex because it's not just about 
the marketing and the communications to your customers or, or your potential customers. It's not just about the communication internally to your employees. There's so many levels of what people do and how they they operate and and treat people and this transparency. You know, there's things people didn't know or understand before, which now they do. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I wrote my book, I, I all the companies. Um, to your first point about research, all the companies that I profile in that book were mentioned in the research to varying degrees, but they all came from brands people thought exhibited good corporate citizenship and brand leadership on some levels and things and were favorite brands also. There were three sort of criteria that built into that. And there were brands I was upset, personally disappointed, didn't come up, but they didn't. So I couldn't put them in there. Mm -hmm. And so the perceptions of real people and people on on the man on the street, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but the, but the person organizations are talking to on multiple levels, and they can be their customer, they can be their employee, and they can be their investor. They can also work at a supplier, you know. But the perceptions of what real people see and define as this notion of of doing good and good corporate citizenship are often very different than those of us that work in these fields define as it. And so you have to step back and make sure you're not using your bias to do that. You know, I started out my life in advertising and media planning, and most people don't know this. It's it's like something buried way down them. And when I was doing this, one of the brands I worked on, the people who bought this brand, it's a I'm not going to say the brand or anything, but they were women who read True Confessions magazines. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I think they still exist. I'm not sure. And so I put a percentage of the media budget in True Confessions alongside the, you know, the red books and other things of magazines. And this was a magazine era and also probably some television in there, too. And the head one of the very senior people, I was very junior at this stage, and one of the very senior people in the department knocked True Confessions off our approved magazine list because she didn't like the magazine. <laughs> she thought it was, she had a judgment on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I had to go into her office and fight tooth and nail and say, you are not this client's customer. You cannot take this off our media list. It's going to kill this brand. So that's the problem. We need to, to see real people in this data and we need to separate ourselves and our judgments and be, we have to be so cognizant of our own biases. And it doesn't mean you can eliminate them, but you have to be aware they're there. And so when you as a brand manager or you as a CEO or you as a board member are looking at something and it's really hard but you have to separate yourself from what you want as compared to what your, your real audiences want, the real people that are material to success of your business. And often those two things get very muddled. Yes. And it takes a lot. I'll, I'll never forget. I was doing a workshop with a client um, in the travel industry and we were having them outline who this person was and blah, 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 blah. And someone was like, oh my God, I get it. This is actually my neighbor. <laughs> They're like, I never thought of this person as my neighbor because we're looking at this data and labeling it as data and thinking of it as separate from ourselves. Mm. 
And so you need to start saying who fits in, who is this person? And I know there's been, you know, all the, the archetype things and everything like that, but, and sometimes that brings it home and sometimes it doesn't, but then you have to also recognize, do I have a judgment against this archetype and how is that influencing my decision? I mean, yeah. the problem is, is the business and brands are run by people <laughs> and, and people are human and they make mistakes. But if we're cognizant of the fact that we may make a mistake and then we're not godlike, <laughs> we can start looking at this with greater humility. Humility isn't only how a boss or a supervisor or manager treats a person who reports to them. Humility is also how someone reads data and who the person is who's doing that. And unfortunately, we bring our judgments into there. And I participated in this event. It was probably toward the start of COVID, maybe two years ago at this point, two and a half years ago, that was discussing a lot of these issues and the taking the stands as, as you were talking about and how people can do it and should and should not do it. And that was one of the things that, that the facilitator said is that in her work with CEOs, they feel like young marketers are hijacking their agenda for the business with the things they care about. That's like so heartbreaking to me too. But it's because the young marketers wanted to get sustainability on the agenda or purpose mm -hmm. on the agenda. Mm -hmm. But so we, we have to look at what matters to our audiences, but we also see what's starting to matter. And the problem is there's so much data and so much trend stuff is really still backward looking. Mm -hmm. You know, we often track trends after they've happened or when, when they're at the end of it, because we now see it happening. What you need to do is start reading the signs. And, and deconstruct things and see things from wider systems perspective. And taking that wider systems perspective really does make a difference. And it's not something marketers or, or even many people in an organization, even in supply chain, are taught about. I had the fortune of working at an INGO before COVID, and I actually learned a lot about deep systems perspectives and how you step back. And that really tied to a lot of my research strategy is often people just look at something from in category, not how someone defines something in the file folder in their brain, which often is different right. than the category. So talk us through some of those ways. You know, if I'm a, a brand leader listening and I perk up a little bit and I think, okay, I do want to be able to step back a little bit. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Anne Lamott. She said, you know, when you realize that God hates everybody that you do, that's like your, your red flag that something has gone awry. <laughs> and so, and I, I thought of that quote, when you just talk about that need for humility, that we don't have that godlike view. And so when we're convinced that everybody sees the world and thinks through it the same way that we do, that is a blinking red light. That's always been my blinking red light. Like when I'm angry at everybody in my world, because they're all just, you know, whatever I'm like, huh. Time for you to step back and take some breaths, Lindsay, because it's not everybody else. <laughs> the problem is mm -hmm. you. So what are some of those ways that we can step back and get a wider perspective of what's happening? Well, so I talk about some of these in my book. I think I use Quaker Oats, which is a really old example for me, mm -hmm. but I just loved how there was an enlightenment with this. Instant Quaker Oat meal was always viewed as having cereal as a competitor. So whenever the brand was trying to figure out what to do, it was looking immediately at hot, other hot cereals and then at cold cereals, because that's the shelf it sat on. But when you went and talked to mothers and little kids, and I, I mean, we 
we had these anecdotes. It wasn't real research. It was mother-in-law research, but it was mother-in-law research that actually transformed how I ended up doing so much of my research and defining things from that moment on. You know, we had mothers and kids tell us all the things they ate for breakfast and mothers confessed. I give them a Milky Way in the car because I didn't have time to give them breakfast and we're off to, to, to daycare or whatever the case may be. And we had them separately categorize how they saw these, these, different, these different items they ate for breakfast. Instant Quaker oatmeal, oatmeal rarely came up in the same category as other cereals. It came up with pancakes that daddy makes me. Hmm. It came up with mommy's hug for me in the morning because she can't do this. So, and that's where the whole notion, Quaker years ago had a campaign around love. That's where the whole notion came from because it was in a file folder in a different place in people's minds. It wasn't in a category file folder. When I worked on Symantec at the turn of the millennium, the whole notion in network and system security, it's a similar type situation, was all about finding the culprit, finding the person that went into a network and, and, and you know, became a nefarious actor. And this is before system security is what it is today. So if you can think back to before we had these, these, these intense programs on our computers and before hackers were, were hunted out as they were hacking, hackers were only discovered after they were in there as a criminal. Mm-hmm. And what we did was we went out there and talked to people from the CIO down to the person at their desk working on the computer. And the thing that became clear is everyone wanted to be free to work and play in a networked world without interruption. So rather than finding the culprit, the brand became about ensuring there were no interruption. And that transformed network and system security. In the same way hot cereal being about love transformed how people thought about hot cereal. So you don't necessarily sit on the category shelf you're at. And so it's stepping back and seeing that. But if we then take a bigger systems perspective with sustainability, it's about plotting every little place your brand touches and who is touched by those things. Now, granted, a lot of those people are not material, but knowing they're there actually helps you identify who could potentially respond in a negative way if you take a stand. Mm -hmm. So it's about seeing that journey, not in a vacuum, not vertically, but really, you know, being in a war room and, and laying that piece of paper across this huge football field floor and having people just map out mm-hmm. and see where you go. Yeah, it's, you know, a lot of my work is rooted in the concept of phenomenology. And, you know, when you talk about putting your biases aside, that's the concept of bracketing your bias, you know, that that we can't get rid of it, but we can at least bracket it and say, I know it's here. So let's let's see it. Let's acknowledge it. Let's stare it in the face and say, I see you now sit over there, you know, time out because mm-hmm. I got I got to think through this. And the whole idea of phenomenology really is getting to the essence of of an experience, really, even before it's named and understood, like what was that experience, which is what you're talking about of let's take it outside of the naming, outside of the categorizing, let's take it outside of the data point and really get to the core, to the essence, the the human experience, the qualitative side of things. And I think as marketers, you know, we're very, we can, we can be very data driven. It's all about the numbers. You know, we still live in a very science driven quantitative world where the numbers are king. Like that's, that's where it's at. 
But if you're not talking to your people and having those conversations, really doing that observation humbly, you know, with that curiosity of, of expecting to discover something new, then you do get stuck in that category. You do get locked mm-hmm. in. It. And back to the Bud Light example, I've thought through that situation. It's it's one thing for a brand to say, we want to be leaders in this conversation. Like we know it's going to be tough. We're going to have, we're going to lead this conversation because yes, somehow it connects to the values of, of whatever, but whatever, you know, our higher purposes. But if you don't acknowledge that you have this large audience that may not align with it and you can't prepare a story, you can't prepare a way for them to see themselves in the new narrative that you're creating, that's when things blow up. That's when you alienate, mm-hmm. and, you know, millions and billions of dollars to your brand because you just dropped the bomb on them instead of inviting them into dialogue and conversation. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think we forgot what dialogue is about. We don't really have dialogue. And I have to say, I wrote in the, the very beginning when a lot of the research was quite and quite hadn't yet formed the five-step model brand citizenship and the me to we continuum, but actually started revealing elements of it. I used to write a lot, not a lot, but I periodically wrote about different things Dove could do and how Dove could invite women across conversations globally and connect. And at the time they were they were stepping out further than other brands, but not as far as I really was envisioning they could and how they could actually create that dialogue and bring Western women together with Middle Eastern women and all these things that connect people. And they're doing more and more of that. And so Dove, for example, has been taking stands that actually could have some people angry with them, but they are doing it from that perspective you're talking about. They're taking a considered approach and seeing it as a dialogue, not as an absolute. And that's something different than like a Patagonia that is an absolute in what they're saying. Right. You know, and what's interesting is, does Patagonia get backlash from people in the fossil fuel industry or anything? No, because they just are who they are and they plow forward without apology. Mm-hmm. And I think the challenge is more brands that are trying to move into the space, but not knowing exactly how to or necessarily even why, other than it's something they need to do and should be doing they become apologetic if people get angry. Mm-hmm. So the issue is, is either we stand for this or we don't, where Patagonia takes a strong stand. Dove is taking a stand, but by creating dialogue, mm-hmm. very different ways and approaches of doing something that potentially in different audiences and with different issues could have similar impact. Right. And maybe that's the difference. And this is the last thing we will chat about with Patagonia their very creation was centered around this purpose, this goal, this idea. So from the moment they sprung forth from the earth, everybody knew this is what they stand for versus Dove didn't enter into that conversation on what is beauty until much further down in their their brand evolution. And so if you're evolving, that, that dialogue approach becomes even more important as opposed to if, if you're creating something from the get-go and you're attracting a customer and audience based to you based around those principles, then your audience is naturally going to agree with you. Yes, you're always going to have haters. All of us will always have haters regardless. That's 
neither here nor there, but it's the audience that you, you've cultivated. We have a responsibility to those people. Mm-hmm. We have a responsibility to lead them, to guide them, to invite them, and to help them answer back to that question, who are they going to become when they join us? And when we start to shift that narrative and we do it abruptly, without without warning, without dialogue, it becomes very unsettling to our audience because now they no longer know how to answer that question. Well, and I think it's about evolution. And I just will give a quick example on that as brilliant evolution is Ikea. And when I did the research for my book, I actually started respecting Ikea in a way I never did about the brand. Ikea recognizes when it has mistakes Mm. and goes out there and figures out ways to solve them. It doesn't push back on them. It doesn't apologize. It just creates a solution. And they have a museum in Sweden, where they were founded, that actually even talks about how they evolve from all their mistakes. And there's a multitude of things, whether it's it's about glue for particle board, children and rugs, all sorts of things, and, and things that have come up recently. They continue to take it and say, we are here to offer this for the many people. That is what we are about. And each time, as society shifts, we will shift to keep that definition of what our brand is about, current, mm-hmm. and reflecting the current zeitgeist, because the many people and what 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 you know offering furniture as they started off doing of of you know what what only wealthy people could have to to make other people who didn't have that kind of money have a home that felt as beautiful and comfortable. That's evolved a lot since IKEA was founded, but their founding principles continue to guide them. And they use that purpose as a way to evolve, not say we're going to discontinue this this dresser because of the particle board and and it has formaldehyde. We're going to fix the formaldehyde and we're going to go create a new glue or because people don't realize that they're supposed to um, bracket it to the wall. We're not going to stop doing it because they need this. We're going to find another way to make it balanced. So that's the issue is keep that guiding principle and figure out how to fix things, not walk backwards. Yeah, I love that. And that's so in alignment with like other leadership experts, you know, that your value, your core values, you're saying, you know, your your core purpose, that doesn't change. Mm-hmm. That's your anchor point. And the things that change is, is how you evolve to live that purpose out, how you evolve mm-hmm. to live those values out. But where we get into trouble is where we start to shift that core purpose or those core values to try to keep up and then we just blow willy-nilly all throughout the changing tides of culture. And that puts us in a really precarious situation. Yeah. And I think the challenge is because so many people have so many things on their plate. And each of these things is just one of a multitude of, of what marketers, for example, or, or HR people or communications people or, or supply chain management people have to deal with. This is one of many things. So people really just want a checklist of this is what I need to do to fix it. Mm-hmm. And that's not how you can answer these things, unfortunately. You have to internalize it and act from that internalization, which is why I often find doing workshops or, or things like that with people, getting them involved with the, the material, having them have that 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 bright light moment of, oh my goodness, this is what it's about, not about that. Mm-hmm. I remember one one client, the CFO came to me in the middle of a two-day workshop and said, Anne, I just don't understand what any of this has to do with 
with our brand. I, I don't understand what any of this is. And I said, well, if you feel that way by midday tomorrow, we're in trouble because you actually have to sign the check that pays us. <laughs> so let's check in again by midday tomorrow. And by midday tomorrow, the CFO came to me and this was a executive team two-day workshop actually in the furniture industry that brought together people who had who, who were wood and fabric and design and who had never actually been in a workshop in the same room, even though they were part of the same company, some of them for 25 years. And the CFO came to me at midday on day two and said, I get it. The brand isn't separate. It's our business. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yes, it's the human face. It's what people connect with. It's what brings you preference and loyalty, you know, and, and secures revenues. It is that human face of the business. So we think of each of these things in the compartment because of the department they sit in. And that systems perspective, if we go back to that, has to be about unifying these things. Think about how many budgets there are for purpose and sustainability across an organization. If we actually put them into a single budget rather than different departments and then allocated them in the best way, we may be doing things differently. As a matter of fact, I know a lot of organizations end up doing things differently. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, is we're all just so focused with so many things on our checklist. We just want to get it done. And sometimes taking that extra five minutes to pause and step back to your point earlier actually expedites getting it done and gets it done in a way that actually improves profit, improves engagement, improves all your different measurements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, like you said, we could talk for hours and hours. Where can people get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to learn more about you or get in touch with you? So my website is Ann Barr Thompson, which is my name.com. And that's Ann with an E and Barr, B-A-H-R. And then Thompson with an H and a P, but um, I'm sure you'll have my we'll name spelled out notes. somewhere. Yes. 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 LinkedIn, you can always connect with me. I'm still on Twitter at the moment, although I'm not as active as I used to be. But if you reach out on a con on the contact form on my website, it does get to me and I do respond to every person. And I do have an interaction with every person who offers to connect or sends me an invite, I should say to connect on LinkedIn, because I actually think some level of awareness and knowledge of each other is more important than the numbers. Yeah. Um, although the numbers are important in today's world <laughs> with algorithms, but the reality is to me that connection and that relationship matters because unfortunately with numbers and with data and with all these things, the world can become very transactional. Mm -hmm. And that transactional nature is what's actually put a lot of businesses in the position they're in right now. It's not about the relationship they're forming with people. It's about a transaction. Well, this has been great, Anne. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. As founder and CEO at Storyhouse 15, my vision is to build a world of people who have answered the call that's been uniquely placed upon their lives. So if you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. And if you're ready to grow and pivot with clarity and confidence, be sure to stop by and say hello at storyhouse15.com.